good evening, everyone. Thank you for tuning in, as we said in my radio days, for our primetime series of Bible studies here at Calvary Baptist Church in Gaylord, Michigan. Today's date is January 31st in the year 2021, and we're continuing with the next part of this ongoing series titled, Why We Believe What We Believe. Of course, the reason why we're doing this is because so often, as with anything in our life, and it's true in our Christian faith as well, we may know the, the basics, we may know the who, what, when, where, but we're not all that sure on the how, and we're definitely not sure on the why. I've talked about the history of this and the way that really the first items, who, what, when, and where, are the things that define whether you've come to a saving faith, whether you've accepted the truth of the Scripture as being brought to you by the Holy Spirit who has indicated your need to accept that truth, that you are a sinner and that I am a sinner, and that without Jesus Christ, we stand no hope for eternity, but because of Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ, we are redeemed, we are saved in Baptist speak, and we have that Christian hope for eternity in the Lord's presence instead of eternity separated from the Lord's presence. We're talking about differences of heaven and hell. But we often don't understand the specifics, and therefore we don't understand why your neighbor who lives next door to you comes from, let's say, a Methodist background. And when you talk about basic things, you would find broad agreement. But when you get down to certain specifics, they have a little different understanding of the how and the why. And it would be the same with somebody from any other Christian background. It's difficult to discern the difference and which of those items are differences in which you can agree to disagree because they don't affect salvation or whether they're things that do affect salvation. In other words, why do we believe what we believe? And as a result of that, why do they believe what they believe? And so often, the most honest answer we could really give is because that's what we were taught. And that, I would suggest, is something that we've got to get outside of that box. We need to be more mature in our understanding. Our, our walk of sanctification, once we've been saved, justified by faith, then the rest of our life is that process of sanctification. And it's an uneven road with hills and valleys and paved and unpaved sections and potholes, as I often say. And that walk of sanctification, that maturing of our faith, in which the Holy Spirit conforms us more and more into the likeness of Christ, that is an area of our life in which we need to be seeking to grow in our understanding, which includes why we believe what we believe. So that just as a quick reminder, in the very first session, I gave you an overview of what was to come, and that included a, a, a chart, a, I'd say a graphic, that I'm putting on the screen right now that shows the divisions and the branches of Christianity. There are three major branches, the Roman Catholic uh, branch, the Eastern Orthodox branch, which arguably was a branch off of Roman Catholicism, and then the Protestant branch. And I've even reminded you how the teaching that Baptists aren't Protestants is a half-truth. When you look at the way Baptists in America are, we clearly were affected by the Protestant Reformation. And we're going to begin to show why that is 
as we start to now transition to some of the early days of the Protestant Reformation. We're talking the early and the middle 1500s here. And last week we talked about a well-known man in Germany, well, modern-day Germany, at the time it would have been Saxony, northern and eastern Germany, a man named Martin Luther. The denomination Lutheran is named after him, and even Lutheranism has branches, some of which are very conservative and traditional, and some of which are surprisingly liberal. But all of that, nonetheless, can be traced back to that time in the early 1500s, and last week I talked about how Luther was a Roman Catholic monk, but he noticed that there were things he just couldn't resolve, including that the Latin version of the Bible, the Latin Vulgate, which was the only acceptable Bible in the Roman Catholic Church until relatively recently, that that version essentially, by its translation, said, if you do all the things that the Roman Catholic Church tells you to do, you will become righteous. And the Latin word was justificare, which means become righteous. Luther did what he was told he shouldn't do. He looked at the original Greek of those passages, and the Greek word dikiahu means you will be declared righteous. And there was a big difference between become and declared. And that combined with all kinds of other things that Luther saw in the Roman Catholic Church really troubled him, including the selling of indulgences, the idea that the church would grant someone a slip of paper for a certain amount of money so that that individual could buy a reduced time in purgatory for departed members of their family. Luther just couldn't deal with it anymore, and he kicked off what we know as the Protestant Reformation. And so we talked about that last week and covered it. Today we're going to switch kind of next door to Switzerland, to Switzerland, we're going to talk about two men, Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin. The second of the two names is relatively well-known. The first one, probably not so much. So we're going to talk about what they did in Switzerland, how it was different than what Luther was doing in Germany, and how that affects our understanding of Scripture, including why we believe what we believe. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the amazing power of technology. May we use it to supplement our study of the Bible. Help us to stay focused on the tasks at hand tonight, and help me to be efficient and not long-winded. And we're asking this, Lord, in your name. Amen. All right. So who is this guy named Zwingli? Ulrich Zwingli. Well, he was the founder of the Protestant Reformation in Switzerland at about the same time frame that Luther was starting it in Germany. Luther got a lot more attention. But Zwingli was a leading figure in this movement, and it parallels Martin Luther in a number of ways. He was born only two months before Zwingli was. Uh, Mr. Zwingli was born in 14... 84 in a small village about 40 miles from Zurich, Switzerland. His father was able to provide him with an excellent education that included all the way up to a bachelor and a master's degrees from the University of Basel there in Switzerland. Now Luther had grown up and became ordained in the Catholic Church. He was a priest. And he brought to the pastorate 
uh, a common practice prior to the Reformation, um, something that really he grew up with. He had busied himself preaching, teaching, and pastoring, but his love was for the private study of Greek. And this was something that really kicked off the Protestant Reformation. If you remember, I had mentioned a moment earlier that one of the things that really made a huge impression on Luther was some differences between the Latin Bible, which was the only one the Catholic Church allowed, and the Greek Bible. Because there was a, a new factor that came into existence right in that same time frame, the early 1500s. I have mentioned this in our previous study about Bible translations. A man whose last name was Erasmus, and he was piecing together a Greek New Testament. At that time, uh, the church did not have a Greek New Testament. They had all the fragments and different copies of the original manuscripts. But there wasn't, they couldn't look at a bound copy of something and say, okay, here's the Greek New Testament, knowing that it predated the Latin Bible, but they didn't even have one. And so, even though the Catholic Church had not really approved it yet, this man Erasmus went to work to piece together a Greek New Testament, and he did it by comparing all the different copies of the manuscripts that he has, and with that, you were able to achieve to a very high reliability something that you thought was reflective of the original. And this was called the text that has been received, and in Latin, it was known as the textus receptus. Why is this important to us? Well, for one thing, the textus receptus is not the exclusive basis, but the heavy basis of the King James translation and a couple of the English translations that came just before the King James translation. Remember I had said in some of my previous podcasts, the King James translators also leaned somewhat on the Latin Vulgate, and so it was not like a new translation from the original. But the idea was the Textus Receptus was the first complete Greek New Testament that they had, and they felt that it was a very high degree of reliability within it. So Erasmus impressed Mr. Ul Mr. Ulrich Zwingli, with his scholarship, and he had a great influence on him. And this is at the same time that right next door in today what we call Germany, Luther published this list of 95 um, complaints that he basically had with the Catholic Church. And Zwingli, who had never heard of Luther, begins to preach a message that actually is surprisingly similar to Luther a gospel message that salvation is by grace through faith, not by works. And so Mr. Zwingli begins attacking some of the abuses of the Catholic Church in Switzerland, including the sale of indulgences, which was one of the things that really was the straw that broke the camel's back with Martin Luther. Now, like Luther, Zwingli was First, uh, he was first seeking to reform the church from within. He did not want to form a new denomination in his name. And in December 1518, which is only one year after Luther had nailed those complaints of his to the door of the castle church up in Wittenberg, Germany, Zwingli was installed as what was called a people's priest in the great cathedral in Zurich. And he broke from tradition by departing from the church's schedule for sermons. Instead, Zwingli began to preach through the books of the New Testament based on his own study of Greek. 
1522, some of his parishioners during the season of Lent, they ate meat. And it was brought to Zwingli by complainers, basically, and Zwingli supported them. To Zwingli, eating meat was a matter of Christian liberty. That the restrictions the church had placed on it weren't appropriate. And at the same time, Zwingli publishes a list of 67 items in which he rejects many key Catholic doctrines. In 1524, the city of Zurich removes all these religious images from its churches. If you've ever been in large Catholic cathedrals, you see all those different images. And I can tell you, if you, you, you visit Europe and you go through many of these cathedrals that years ago were Roman Catholic cathedrals and then they became Protestant churches, Protestant cathedrals, you'll find all these empty niches. And you wonder, well, why, why did they go to the trouble to build that? It was because 500 years ago, all the statues of them were pulled out because the belief was that it was a graven image. That was the year, by the way, 1524, that Zwingli married, which obviously was not allowed under Catholic rules. Well, by the next year, 1525, the Protestant Reformation takes a pretty firm root there in Switzerland. Uh, Zurich leaders officially abolished the Mass. The Bible was read and preached in the language of the people instead of in Latin. And Zwingli saw to it that the communion service was open to both congregation and clergy alike. Celebrating indulgences and emphasizing prayers to Mary and praying for the dead were no longer practiced. In many ways, this man Zwingli is somebody that we would have, um, I think we would have supported many, many of his teachings. Now Luther and Zwingli actually met in 1529. They and the other reformers were present, you know, their, their first lieutenants, so to speak. Luther's was a man named Philip Melanchthon. And they agreed in principle on 14 of the 15 different issues at hand. But there was one topic they differed on. And in, the, in a future version, a future episode of this series, we'll talk about that more in depth. That's the matter of communion, the Lord's Supper, a traditional view of it, the liturgical view of it, as they would call it, the Eucharist. Both men rejected the Roman Catholic teaching that's called transubstantiation, meaning that the, the, the wine, in their case, and the bread become, somehow, become the body and blood of Christ. That's the Catholic teaching. Luther held a view called consubstantiation, not transubstantiation. It doesn't change into, but it is somehow mystically present within the elements of communion. Luther was trying to have it both ways. Zwingli's position was very close to the Baptist position, that it was mainly symbolic memorial of the Lord's death. Now, in 1529, Zwingli and a colleague of his finish work on their very first edition of what would be called the Zurich Bible, sometimes called the Zwingli Bible, and that became the world's first Bible in the language of Swissdeutsch, which means Swiss, the Swiss variation of German. Switzerland is an interesting country. Terry and I have been there twice. There are sections of it in which they speak a German dialect, Swissdeutsch, 
There are sections of it where they speak a French dialect, Suisse Franc. And there are some isolated sections of it where I'm told in very small towns some people still speak Latin. And on the southern side of, of Switzerland, they're bordering on Italian, so there's probably border towns there in which they speak a dialect of Italian. Interesting country. 1531, the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church and some of their armies attack the city of Zurich, and the Protestants go to battle against them. Ulrich Zwingli joined Zurich's army as a field chaplain. He was severely wounded in battle, and when his enemy soldiers, when the enemy soldiers found him, they killed him and cut up his body, burned the pieces, and mixed his ashes with dung. That gives you an idea of the treatment of the Roman Catholic Church at that time of anybody who dared stand up against it. Swingley's influence in the Reformation really can't be overstated. He stands as one of the greats of the movement that began in Europe and remains today. People who are not Roman Catholic throughout the world owe a certain debt to Zwingli. Now, let's transition to the other key figure in Switzerland, John Calvin. Now, he was French, and he moved then to Switzerland, and today he's probably the much better known of the two. A Baptist pastor in England a couple hundred years later, I mentioned him frequently, Charles Spurgeon, wrote the following. He said, the longer I live, the clearer does it appear that John Calvin's system of theology is the nearest to perfection. Most Baptists are not comfortable with that because John Calvin had a heavier leaning on the concept of God's divine predestination and election, and that goes against the American ideal of individual free choice. We've talked about that before. We'll probably review it in a future section of this series, but we're not going to focus on that too much tonight. So Calvin was in the latter half of what was called the Renaissance, that time of the reawakening, roughly 1450 to perhaps 1600. So Calvin is in that middle to end portion of the 1500s. The political and the church um, tension is coming to a head. People who are wealthy tradesmen, they were tired of financially being exploited. They shift the political power away from both the feudal lords and the Roman Catholic Church, and the result is a growing form of nationalism, economically, socially, and even in terms of the number of people. Europe is still recovering from the Black Plague 150 years earlier. And remember, the authority of the, the Pope has been split between, well, at one point, remember, there were three different people claiming to be Pope back in, came to a head in 1054, and we had talked two podcasts ago about the split between the East and the West versions of the Roman Catholic Church. Popes had become amazingly corrupt, and there were just a real question about the legitimate authority that the Church had then. That's why we call it the Protestant Reformation. They were protesting the abuses and the elements of the Roman Catholic teaching that just could not be um, justified by Scripture. Now, John Calvin's father originally wanted him to be a, a priest, but when his fortunes changed, he decided his son would be better off as a lawyer, which is actually what Martin Luther started out as. 
So the training that Calvin received in the law and in humanity served him well in theology. But an invasion in Constantinople of modern-day Turkey pushed the Eastern scholars and their literature west. So the influences of that Eastern Orthodox Church now was finding its way back into Europe. And something else came along, the printing press. That allowed Luther to publish his Bible in German. Well, it also allowed some of these writings of these scholars over there in the Eastern sections of Europe to have their, what they've written, be read throughout the known world at the time. And the Western scholars realized how the originals differed from their copies, and they developed a practice. I'm talking about the manuscripts. This practice known as textual criticism, in which you compare the manuscripts you have of the, the Bible, and you look and you see, okay, I've got 500 copies of the book of Matthew, and 450 of them are identical, and 50 of them have little variants in here. I think there's a very solid argument to be made that the 450 are the reliable version. People don't like that because they want something that is a divinely inspired version. And I've talked in our sessions before about Bible translations. Inspiration and preservation are connected, but they're not the same thing. God has preserved his word, which he had inspired, but he also worked through humans, including the original human authors who wrote under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Calvin was probably really the deep academician. And his conversion from Catholicism to early Protestantism is something of a mystery. But by 1536, he began to write something that today is considered standard reading in seminaries everywhere, the Institutes of the Christian Religion a defense of the reformers and of the Reformation from a theological standpoint. So as the Roman Catholic Church's authority continues to be threatened here in that first half of the 1500s, the Catholic authorities strike back and Calvin flees from France. And as he gets into Switzerland, he runs across a friend, William Farrell, who persuades him to stay and to teach, even though Calvin at the time was a lawyer, not a minister. But Geneva really wanted to break with Rome for financial reasons as well. So Geneva's city leaders declare that the city is Protestant. But they don't have adequate church leadership now in this new Protestant division. So they welcome Calvin up to that point, and he starts teaching his theology. They rewrite church polity and policies, it's called, and they wind up causing a riot <laughs> over the use of unleavened bread in communion. So they're removed from Geneva, and Calvin goes to pastor a French-speaking congregation in Strasbourg. And well there, he finds time to write. And he writes a book in the format of a catechism. And most of the commentary series based on the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In other words, he was not using the Latin version. And so he eventually expands his writings and it becomes this institute of Christian religion. Six, originally six short chapters and eventually it becomes four full books. Now I've talked before about how the 
the political world and the church world were connected. There was just no way to deny that connection. Three years into Calvin's exile, a very popular Catholic cardinal writes an open letter inviting Geneva, the city of Geneva, to return, Roman Catholic faith. And he gave arguments why he should. And the city council asks Calvin to write a response. And he writes a very masterful letter in reply, answering that the religious argument arguments and the defending of the Protestant leaders were biblical. And the city of Geneva stayed Protestant, and they bring Calvin back. And they agreed to his reforms. Now, the thing about Calvin is, like Luther, the Catholics wanted him dead, but the Calvinists were loyal and Calvin went on to continue to influence life in Geneva. And so he, along with Zwingli, a half generation before him, are the Swiss reformers that God used very powerfully to stand up to the abuses and the wrong teachings in the Roman Catholic Church. Now on that matter of communion, where Luther and Zwingli could not agree on the nature of the Lord's presence. Neither one of them believed the Catholic view. Luther nuanced it, and he said, no, the body and the blood of Christ are present within, but they don't become. <laughs> Zwingli was much closer to our view that they represent. Calvin kind of took a middle-of-the-road view. He was teaching that the communion is a, a memorial, and yet it is a way to feed spiritually on Christ. Everybody's trying to nuance it their own little way back then. Kind of like today. People are always trying to nuance it and to have one little wrinkle that they have that makes them unique. And the problem with that is that the tendency is very strong that what they want to do is they want to define God in their own terms. Now, I would say that Calvin had a, a big influence on what was to happen in England and in Scotland and in what today would be the Netherlands. And they had a big influence on the pilgrims and the Puritans, those early settlers in America. So in that sense, Christianity in early America and even Christianity today is heavily influenced by the writings and the teachings of this man, John Calvin. There is a systematic view of scripture called Calvinism, and he uses an acronym, the TULIP, and we'll talk about that in one of the future podcasts. We've done it before, but it's good to review it every now and then. At the same time, we're not going to solve that one because, of course, that one is, as I say, certainly beyond my pay grade, and I think that the misrepresentations of it today are things that Calvin, if he were alive, would say, no, that's not what I was teaching. So we do need to extend some grace on that matter. The idea is that God was moving powerfully there in that early portion and middle portion of the 1500s. But it wasn't limited to just Germany and Switzerland. It soon began to hit England. And that'll be the next topic next week. We begin to talk about this Protestant Reformation and how it hits England and how that has such a heavy influence on the American early settlers here, the colonists, 
and eventually on the American Founding Fathers. So that's an overview of the Swiss Reformation. It's a very quick flyover. But as with most things, this is just to give you the basics. This is the Joe Friday version from Dragnet. Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. For those of you that are interested in more reading, I'm sure that I can provide some for you if you really want to know. I do appreciate you joining us tonight. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for taking the time to want to go deeper, to mature in your Christian faith, and to better understand why we believe what we believe, because that's going to be informed by understanding why others believe what they believe. And having a good gauge about where we extend grace and where we shouldn't, and where we should pray that they would extend grace to us if there's something in which we have perhaps, if not been wrong, at least been inappropriate with our attitudes. So I do thank you once again. I hope you have a great week. God bless you. And I hope to see you again very soon.